0: We have just finished a short series on our vision uh, consisting of three sermons, one on each of the heads or each of the main ideas or main points of the vision, glorify, nurture, and proclaim. So now, as, as we mentioned in the congregational meeting last week, um, the session has launched a number of initiatives to help sort of flesh this vision out, to help us live in light of it. And one of those initiatives is what we have called a formation or a shepherding initiative. The main idea here being to mold, to form us as a people, to equip us to do the main things the vision says, to glorify the triune God, to nurture the saints, to proclaim the gospel in word and deed. And part of this initiative entails Identifying and deploying all, all the spiritual gifts of the saints here. Because it's the saints, you guys, all of us, not, not merely the leaders. We saw this a couple weeks ago in the nurture sermon from Ephesians 4. It's the saints who are equipped for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body and love right we have a royal priesthood and this requires a sound understanding of spiritual gifts a discernment of what our own gifts are in order that every part every part every member every joint every ligament works together for the health of the community and to that end this sermon will be an overview of spiritual gifts I'm not going to look at the actual gift lists, the lists of gifts themselves. I'm probably not going to answer many of your questions about spiritual gifts. I'm not going to address disputed questions about whether this gift or that gift is for today. Those sorts of things. Rather, what I want to do this morning is set out a basic framework for how to see the gifts, how to think about them, and to show us why we need them. And need them desperately. Lord willing, in the days to come, we'll provide a spiritual gifts survey of sorts to help you prayerfully discern your gifts and eventually meet with your shepherding elder. If you're a member here or a regular visitor, you have an elder that's assigned to pray for you and care for you. If you don't know who that is, see one of the elders. But, um, you know, we want to help every member Find their place, their work of service in the body. And that's what we're doing. Now, this is perhaps new for us here at Westminster, but we believe it's necessary for us to grow up into what Paul says is a mature man, into the, the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. So our main text will be the 1 Corinthians 12 reading. I'll also draw a little bit on some of these other lessons And with that, we're going to make three points. They're in the back, inside page of the bulletin. The gift giver, diversity, and unity. So, the gift giver first. The gift giver is the triune God. And in particular, the emphasis on gifting falls on the work of the Spirit. Right? Thus, Paul uses this phrase, which we're all familiar with. Spiritual gifts. Meaning gifts that come through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, right at the outset, there's a couple of dangers to ward off here. The first one, perhaps prominent in communities that put a lot of accent on the spiritual gifts, is there's this tendency to cut the spirit off from Christ And from the Father. We are Trinitarians, and we must never even, even when we're emphasizing the Spirit, think of the Spirit as just an impersonal force, something detached apart from the Son and the Father. Paul does not do this. But even in our text from 1 Corinthians 12, which is his longest discussion on spiritual gifts, Listen to what he says. This was in verses 4 through 6 of the reading. He says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but it is the same God that is at work. Right? From the Father through the Son in the Spirit. That's how the gifts come to the church. It's the Spirit of the risen Christ. The Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and the Son. That Spirit, never a stand-alone, detached force or power. That Spirit pours gifts on the church. So, a second danger to avoid here is to falsely pit one thing against another. You'll often run into this in discussions on spiritual gifts. One way to do this is to say that God the Spirit is himself the greatest gift. This is, of course, true. We heard it in the gospel lesson. Ask, seek, knock. What is Jesus saying we should be asking, seeking, and knocking for? The end of the text tells you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, as one of our hymns puts it, the best of all donations that God can give or man implore. This is often obscured and blurred once discussions of spiritual gifts start. That the one who is coming to give the gifts is God himself, the greatest of all the gifts. So, it is often said, we shouldn't get caught up with the gifts. Or to pit the fruits of the Spirit against the gifts. For example, to say, Paul goes on to speak of love in 1 Corinthians 13 as the more excellent way. So the gifts are not really a big deal, just be loving. These are all cheap distortions. right? Paul, Paul thinks that God himself is our great good, our chief end. And he thinks that love is the most excellent way of Christian living. And he thinks that spiritual gifts are vital for the life of the church. And we must think the same. We must avoid cheap distortions. Order and proportion. Some of you have heard that before, right? Order and proportion. And order and proportion does not mean ignoring things just because something happens to be more important. The gifts are crucial. They are not God. And if they are exercised without love, they are useless. Nevertheless, rightly embraced, they are critical. So those are some common ditches to avoid. But notice, notice the positive content of Paul's statement. It's a beautiful statement. God is diverse. God is himself the root of all diversity in the creation and in human cultures and nations. The Spirit, the Lord, and God the Father, yet he is one God. There's this Unity and diversity, oneness and threeness, equal in the Lord. And they don't compete with one another. The one God is three, the three persons are the one God. So, the Apostle reasons, in the same way, the diverse gifts given to many members bind us together as one body. This is really a remarkable thing, right? The life of the church is to be a manifestation of diversity, genuine diversity, without fragmentation and division. And genuine unity without sameness and conformity. Now, Paul is concerned here, when his emphasis is on the gifts, he's concerned with the diversity part. It's a diversity which does not compete with, but it serves, it strengthens unity. So in this way, through the Spirit's diverse gifts, the church comes to reflect, the church comes to reflect the unity and the diversity of God himself. The Eastern Fathers in the ancient church used to say that the church is an icon of the Holy Trinity. Meaning she's a creaturely manifestation in time of God's unity and his diversity. Many members, one body. The gifts make the church reflect the gift giver. They lead back to the gift giver. They make the church reflect the gift giver. So I want to look at this diversity and then the unity. So the second point here is the diversity itself. So, the triune God, sovereign, gift-giving God, in his perfect wisdom and goodness, he has distributed. You'll notice that that's a key word here. He has distributed, Romans 12 says, faith to each one. Or the First Corinthians 12 text says, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. It's quite amazing. Everyone is ordered with their personalities and gifts just as God wants them to be. Each one, these texts tell us, is gifted, placed in your life, you and theirs, they and yours, to enable the full range of the Spirit's gifting. When Paul thinks of the church, then, he says things like this. Every one of us is baptized by the spirit into the body. We were all, he says, all, everyone, given the same spirit to drink. Everyone, then. Everyone is a spirit-endowed, gifted royal priest. This is a mindset that is sometimes either missing or muted in Reformed churches. We have to kindle it. We do not believe in the priesthood of some believers. Right? We believe in the priesthood of all believers. And the gift of the Spirit of Christ, and this is often forgotten, is a great act of democratization. It's a remarkable thing in the history of the world that God himself comes and gives himself to everyone in the community. So here you have an ancient community in the Roman world with all of its division and segregation and class hierarchy. And Christians are saying, no, slaves, free, men, women, Jew, Greek, barbarian, Scythian. Everyone has the gift of God himself as spirit. Everyone drinks of the divine light and life. For us, it might seem boring. Yeah, we've heard this before. But it's an epochal thing in the history of the world for this spirit to come without discrimination, without prejudice to race or class or economic standing. And so, since God Himself has ordered and ordained this diversity, we must embrace it. But we don't want to make the other people in the body of Christ into our own image, that would be disastrous. We want to foster and nourish and maintain it, diversity. And there are, in our text that we heard, two attitudes that we're going to need if we want the diverse gifts to flourish. I'm going to take a look at these two attitudes now. The first is in uh, Romans 12, 3. Paul says something sharp, and he says something maybe surprising. He says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. There's a kind of arrogance, a failure to think about ourselves correctly, which leads to thinking of ourselves as sort of self-sufficient islands, as not really standing in need of our brothers and sisters. It's kind of a quintessential American individualism, the rugged frontier, self-sufficient person. We would never say it out loud, but many of us don't think that some people have anything much to offer, either in general or specifically to us. I mean, this is sort of a default attitude, actually, if you get to know people. Some of you may feel this way about yourself, that you don't really have anything to offer. I can tell you that this sermon is really meant to disabuse you of that. Any and all of the idea that you do not have gifts or a ministry or a calling, which we need. Of course, here now, Paul's addressing the opposite attitude, those who think, more highly of themselves than they ought, and they either ignore or they despise or they simply don't care about the grace and gifts that have been distributed to each one for our good. We must watch that attitude and correct it. The second thing here, which will help us embrace this diversity, may be obvious, but it's what Paul speaks of right after charging us not to think more highly of ourselves, but to think with sober judgment. Paul doesn't want you to think too lowly of yourself either. I mean, he, he wants you to think soberly about yourself. But the next thing he says is, not all members have the same function. Right? They don't. See. That would be a monstrosity, he says. Where, you know, where would the body be if every part was an eye or an ear? Where, you know, if, if everything was an ear, where would the sense of smell be, he says. Just as with the human body... One body, many members, so it is with the church. Simple enough, right? It is simple, but it's costly to live it out because Paul goes on and says, this means that each member belongs to the others. Now that starts to dig down kind of deep. You and I belong. In a very practical sense, to the whole body, to all the others. Or to put it differently, our brothers and sisters have a rightful claim on us, on our time, on our talents, on our treasures, on our gifts, to some extent, on our privacy, on our priorities. Because we belong. No one should feel like they don't belong, like they're excluded or sidelined. That is a tragic situation. And part of what this initiative I spoke of is trying to do is to address that. In fact, you do belong. You belong to the whole body. In fact, Paul goes on and he says, if the foot or the ear should say, because I'm not a hand or an eye, I don't belong to the body, it doesn't, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. You belong. You belong and your gifts belong for the common good, Paul says. For the common good. Gifts are for the community. We exercise them, Peter says, to serve the other. So no one, there's no private gifts of the Spirit, really, for for one's own possession or for one's exclusive edification. Gifts and gifted people are, in some basic sense, public property. And all gifts are for the diverse whole. So living this out, this kind of diversity in a community, can be very unnerving. it would probably entail making mistakes, trying things, failing, right? disrupting patterns of thought and ministry that we might take for granted. Right? But if we're going to walk in step with the Spirit and deploy every member, there's going to be some chaos that comes with that. We must prayerfully seek to move forward, and that's going to entail some risk. It's certainly going to entail some initiative, some holy initiative. Yes, while it seeks oversight, it doesn't wait for leaders as if we were the source of all ministry ideas or all options for the community. Oversight is not some sort of pre-approval from from the, the leaders. So I want you to hear me clearly. The time is drawing near for you and your gifts to be nurtured and deployed for the good of all. That's diversity. Finally, unity. Diversity manifests, it serves unity. If we belong to one another, indeed, to all, we are dependent on one another, as verse 21 puts it. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you or to put this another way diversity creates obligations it is immoral for us we cannot paul says we cannot say we don't need the other parts there was apparently behind this you know a kind of arrogance at corinth where paul is writing The church he's writing to, he says, and it created this great division and strife. And, you know, at the heart of that arrogance is this. I don't need you. I don't need you. Whether it's the rich not needing the poor or people of certain classes not needing people of other classes or people of a certain age not needing people of another age or race or folks with certain gifts feeling they have no need for the gifts of the others. This was a disaster at the Corinthian church. So we belong to all the others, Paul says, and we cannot even speak otherwise. Now, and now here he presses us even a little harder. He says this. Now, you may be listening to this and you may think, but I don't have any gifts. Or, but I don't feel like I belong. Or how can this possibly be true about me? You know what Paul goes on to say here? He says, especially the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, especially those parts, he says, are indispensable. The parts we think, these are Paul's words, the parts we think are less honorable are to be given special honor. Special honor. Now, here he makes it clear, right? Every part is to be honored. Just like he says, he's going to say, you treat every part of your body, whether it's a presentable part or a private part, you treat it with modesty and with honor. It's as if he's saying, look, it's precisely those that we think we don't need that we must honor the most, that are the most indispensable. Now, now it turns out, That diversity is very, very demanding. Right now, now you can hear the words of Jesus deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Because diversity now seeks to forge a unity that we naturally chafe against, right? That cannot be substituted for with some sort of virtual community or even some sort of purely civic, natural community. Creating a real flesh and blood community is extremely difficult. Most people check out of the process. And again, Paul says that God has arranged the body. This is in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 24 and 25 with its seemingly weak and less honorable parts. Why has God done this? Why are there, there are these weak and apparently less honorable parts in the body? Here's why. Paul says, this is the reason why. So that. Now, you know I love those two words. Right? When you see the words so that in the New Testament, you really should perk up and say, oh, he's giving me the deep logic, the rationale. So why are all these... Uh, apparently less honorable, weak parts, so indispensable. God has arranged these parts this way so that there should be no division in the one body. So it turns out that diversity demands unity. No division, no alienation of affection, no single person overlooked or mistreated or feeling like they don't belong, or that we don't need them. Do not settle then, do not settle, for making this place a pleasant social organization with a lovely religious service on Sundays. Whatever such a thing is, it is not the church. The church is a sacrament of the new creation of a reconciled new humanity, a harbinger of a united but diverse humanity of the future. That's the project that the church is involved on. The tragedy is many Christians go their whole Christian life without ever embarking on the project. They choose the former option, a pleasant social organization where there are some friends and where there's a lovely service on Sunday. This is an audacious claim of the gospel. That the church is to be this kind of community, but this is the way Paul speaks. This is why he speaks as he does in these texts. He thinks this way because he thinks the church is about God's purposes for the cosmos. So, what might it look like? He tells us in verse 25 and 26, it means all the parts of the body should have equal concern. For one another. That's a, another one of those little things where you, you kind of slide over it when you read it, but you realize, wow, that's, that's a demanding ethical injunction from the apostle. And of course, he doesn't mean here that one doesn't have close friends or, or people that you're closer with than others. But he does mean that there are no cliques. He means that the borders of small circles of friends are open borders, permeable borders. That there's a genuine, deep, fervent, and get this, impartial, the same love, right? And concern for each other. So right now, right at this point, the gifts actually produce the more excellent way of love. They bleed in to the concern, of love. Anyone can love people who are like them. Right? Jesus says even the Gentiles do that. Even the Gentiles do that. And because division and alienation are not visible, a lot of it's just carried around in our deep attitudes. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It doesn't mean it's not corrosive. The unity that the apostle is going after here looks like a deep dependency on and a deep care for every sheep in the flock, especially those whose gifts or those who themselves might appear insignificant and less honorable, especially them, especially them. Unity, then, of a diverse body with many parts means Paul says this in verse 26. If one person suffers, every part suffers with it. That's hard to do if you don't even know three-quarters of the people. If one person suffers, their close circle of friends suffer with them. Every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices. This is a kind of deep solidarity and identification with the members. You can imagine people at Corinth saying, to, receiving this letter and hearing it read, saying, hey, I just wanted to go to church. I didn't sign up for this. Now, I've mentioned uh, that I wasn't going to cover the actual list of gifts, and I'm not. We hope to do that soon through the survey I mentioned. But aside from what I've said today, Paul's basic advice on the gifts, once you've discerned what your gifts are, his basic advice is really very simple. Use them. (laughs) He says this over and over and over in these lists. If your gift is X, use it. If your gift is Y, use that. But now, now, I hope, we, we have a framework to see why we use them. right? For the common good of the one body with many members. Right? But that end, that goal in the body of Christ, leads us to our final end. Right? For the end is always the triune gift giver himself. The gifts lead back to the gift giver. We use our gifts, 1 Peter 4 says, so that in all things God might be praised through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. 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 Amen.